Please turn with me in God's Word to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We had been studying there. I'd like to conclude our little series there in 1 Corinthians 13 this evening by looking at verses 8 through 13, the last part of that chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I mentioned before it stands between chapters 12 and 14 where the apostle is dealing with the church as a body, one body with many parts and spiritual gifts and how they are to be used. It's in that context that he would show them a more excellent way, the way of love. 1 Corinthians 13 at verse 1, the apostle says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Is not puffed up. Does not behave rudely. Does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Thinks no evil. Does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Bears all things. Believes all things. Hopes. All things endures all things. And here's our focus tonight. Love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, you will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought... As a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. And now abide faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. And reading on a bit more, chapter 14. Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God, for no one understands him. However, in the spirit he speaks mysteries. But he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. I wish you all spoke with tongues, but even more... That you prophesied, for he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues, unless indeed he interprets that the church may receive edification. Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, would you bless us tonight by your word? Would you teach us the way of love? May the Lord Jesus reign in our hearts by his spirit tonight, and may the spirit give us the fruit of love. In that way, O Lord, may we come to know you more deeply. May we come to reflect you more faithfully. And may all the world know that we are are your disciples by our love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Imagine a situation 
of a couple, young couple, don't have much money, but they're quite serious, a dating couple. They're about to get engaged. They live in the same neighborhood. Everything's going well. The young man's got a little bit of money. They're saving up. They get engaged. Maybe can buy a house. And then the girl and her, her parents, her family moves away. They're about 45 minutes away now. And so the young man says to the girl, well, I think I'm going to buy a car so I can come see you. And they, they talk about that, and he decides he'll do that. And so he finds an old car. It's cheap. It's old. Buys it. He drives to see her. It's great. Next weekend again, he drives over to see her. It's so wonderful to see her. Car keeps clunking along. Next weekend again, he drives over to see her. But in the course of the next week, somebody says, hey, that's quite a car you got. He says, it is? She found this old clunker. Oh, no. He says, that's, that's no Shelby GT, but that's a nice car. That, if you'd shine that car up, if, you would, if you'd restore that car, that's quite a car. Well, this next week, he calls his girlfriend and says he can't come see her. He's going to be working on the car. Something wrong with the car? Well, I just want to make sure it's running good so I can come see you. Next time she sees him, the car has a new paint job. It's the beauty of a car. A couple weeks later, he says he can't come and see her. He's going to do some shopping for the car. She says, well, you're not going to spend too much money on it, are you? Oh, no. But the next time she sees him, it has new wheels and new upholstery. And she's getting a little nervous. How much money are you putting into this car? We don't, we don't have a lot of money. Pretty soon... He starts canceling date nights because he's going to car shows and he's showing off this car. Pretty soon he rarely sees her because he's always working on the car or showing the car. Or, and finally she has to sit down with him one time and say, you know, I thought you bought the car so you could come and see me. But it seems like the car is the main thing now. Well, That, in a way, is what the Apostle Paul is doing with the Corinthians here. This is what the Lord Jesus is doing with the Corinthians. He's saying, I, by my spirit, have given to you spiritual gifts to serve each other. But it seems like you fall in love with the spiritual gifts. Not too much service to one another, but you're showboating about your great spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 13, remember, is not a a lovely standalone poem about love. It's the Savior's exhortation to a church, to a congregation. It's enamored with spiritual gifts. The more spectacular, the more wonderful. Speaking prophecy is a big deal, but tongue speaking, it's ecstatic. It seems so special to speak in a foreign language. That's the top. That's premier. If you have that gift, you are really spiritual. And Paul says you can speak in the tongues of men and angels, but if you don't love, then you're just, you're just clanging cymbals. And you could have prophecy so as to understand all mysteries and knowledge, but you don't love, you're nothing. The spiritual gifts in Corinth are not seen as tools to build one another up, but as things in themselves, and so they're parading themselves, and they're boasting, and they're envying each other's gifts, and the Apostle Paul is calling away from all that. And tonight he concludes 
this little part in verses 8 through 13 by saying, look at love excels all the spiritual gifts. Love is greater. Love is the greatest. And as we look at this tonight, the Lord would teach us, I hope, many things about our life together in the church of Christ. I'd like you to consider three points tonight. The first of all is this, the relative value of spiritual gifts. That's the first point I'd set before you, the relative value of spiritual gifts. The apostles at work in verses 8 through 13 here to show the Corinthians that spiritual gifts have value only relative to love and to the good of the body of Jesus Christ. Spiritual gifts are given by the Holy Spirit in order to build one another up. The Apostle Paul is not, he's not belittling or disparaging of spiritual gifts. They are, in fact, the gifts of God, the Holy Spirit, to his church. But they have value only in relationship to love. And so the Apostle is contrasting here throughout the things that are for a time, the present age, versus the things that for eternity, for the age to come. Now, we're familiar, of course, with that distinction, right? We, we try to employ that every day in our lives, right? You take money and possessions, for instance. We remind ourselves that we often forget these are temporary. They're for a time. They're not for eternity. So I need to use my money. I need to use my possessions in view of eternity, and for things that are worthwhile eternally. Well, that's what the apostle's doing. He's saying, look at love abides to eternity. You notice in verse 8, he says, love never fails. And then in verse 13, at the end, he says, and now abide faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest is love. And so he's, he's bookended this whole thing by emphasizing the, the permanence, the abiding nature of love. And in the middle, then, of that abiding nature of love, there are these temporary things, spiritual gifts. If we lose sight of what's eternal, fall in love with what's temporary, then we're like the rich fool, right, who, who thought because his barns were full that he had everything, and then he dies and finds out it's all worthless, I can't take it with me can't treat what is temporary as eternal. The apostle says in, in verse 10, when I, um, in verse 10, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. So you see the contrast here in the two ages. We're living in the age of incompletion of what is partial. We're looking for what is perfect, what is complete. Now, it might be interesting to you to know that this, this passage has actually been used by people on both sides of the tongue-speaking debate. The charismatics who say tongue-speaking continues, and the cessationists who say tongue-speaking has ceased. And, and some in the charismatic camp have, have looked at verse 10 and said, look at when the perfect comes, that's referring to Jesus' return, and so tongue-speaking must continue till Jesus returns. And, and some in the cessationist camp of which we ourselves would identify, well, some have said, when that which is perfect has come, verse 10, refers to the completion of the Bible. When we have the fullness of this knowledge of the Bible, then tongue-speaking ceases. Well, they're both wrong, I think. The text is not telling us when tongue-speaking ceases, not because it's not important, but because it's not the apostles' desire and purpose right here. The first group, I think, is right. Verse 10, when it says that which is perfect, when it comes, it's talking about the return of Jesus. When we shall know, just as we are fully known by God. 
That's the return of Christ. But the text doesn't say tongue speaking is going to last until that day. Those who interpret verse 10 as saying the perfect comes means the completion of the Bible, I think they misinterpret it, but they are correct in understanding that tongue speaking and prophesying have ceased when the Bible was completed. Those gifts served as a mode of revelation until the fullness of revelation, all that we need until Jesus comes, was given. Once this Bible is completed, we have all the revelation we need until Jesus descends from heaven, and therefore we don't need prophesying. We don't need modes of revelation apart from Scripture. But again, the Apostle's point here is not when tongues speaking stops, that we determine from other passages in the Bible, but his point here is to relativize the spiritual gifts in terms of what's going to be the perfect day when Jesus comes back. Paul, you see, is writing in days when there was tongue speaking. He's writing to a church where there is prophesying, and he wants them to know that those gifts that they're so enamored with are temporary. They don't last forever. Even the knowledge that we have in this age is not complete. Now, Paul gives a couple analogies. We, we like analogies. Paul, Paul, give me an analogy. What are you talking about? He says, well, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I understood like a child. I thought as a child. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. Nobody, nobody disdains an infant when he maybe comes to church with a blankie and a pacifier. It's what babies are supposed to do. But if you grow up to be a man and you still have a blankie or a pacifier, see, then, then there's an issue. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. And then he says, a second analogy, verse 12, we see in a mirror dimly. Corinth was known, the scholars say, for, for making the finest bronze mirrors. You know, as in those days, it was polished metal that functioned as a mirror, and they made great mirrors. And, and yet Paul says, when we look into a mirror, we... We see dimly, but then face to face. Maybe today it's like a a picture, a photograph. You you see someone, but it's not having the person before you. And the apostle is saying there's coming a day when, when, when the partial become complete, when the seeing dimly, we see Christ dimly through through the mirror of the word, but there's coming a day when we will see Christ face to face. Fuller knowledge glorious day, more direct knowledge. And so being a child is not wrong if you're a child. Looking in a mirror serves a purpose, but it all must give way to the complete and to the perfect. Now, if that's true, then the question for the Corinthians is this, how can they treat speaking in tongues and prophesying as being the be-all, end-all, height of spirituality if these things are going to come to nothing on the day Jesus Christ returns? Or, as we know now, even before he returns, to come to an end. All the spiritual gifts will pass away. And so the spiritual gifts are merely tools or means for the present. But if the Corinthians would see tongue-speaking and prophesying and all spiritual gifts as the things that are passing away, then they can't be enamored with these gifts themselves, but they have to ask, how can we employ these gifts in light of that day that's coming? How can we help people know the Lord? How can we build up the church for that day? How can we help each other stay faithful to the coming of Jesus Christ? See, that's why in chapter 14 he says, I wish you... 
all spoke in tongues, but more than I wish you all prophesied. Tongue speaking, nobody knows what you're talking about. You're speaking in a foreign tongue, but to prophesy, that, that builds up the body. Paul even says in chapter 14, verse 18, I thank my God I speak with tongues more than you all, yet in the church I would rather speak five words with my understanding that I may teach others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. And so Paul's even relativizing the spiritual gifts one beneath another and saying some are better because they do more to build up the church. We do believe that tongue speaking and prophesying have come to an end. They served their role till the Bible was completed. But a multitude of spiritual gifts still remain. And we're to look upon all these spiritual gifts God gives us as temporary helps towards the day of Christ's coming. So preachers, I understand that preaching has a role until we see Jesus face to face. Preachers are to hear the clock always ticking. Not the one on the back wall, though. Sometimes I wish it was a little louder. But... But the clicking clock, the ticking clock of, of Christ's return. You see, preaching is just a temporary thing. To proclaim what we have in the book until we see Jesus face to face. Whatever gift Christ has given you, gifts of giving, gifts of hospitality, gifts of service, we're not to glory in the gifts, but we're to use them. You see, the Lord relativizes our service in terms of what will be. Christ says, if you're an elder or deacon, this is not some title that now you, you wear for eternity and you get to stand around with this, with this title. It's an assignment for a time. So use the opportunity. As for ministers, their office will be no more. As for elders, their office will be abolished. As for deacons, their service will come to an end. Whatever gift God the Holy Spirit's given you, whatever strength, whatever opportunities, whatever relationships, leverage them all for what's eternal. And who can teach us to do that but our Lord Jesus Christ? As we saw this morning, he's the supreme office bearer. And on earth, what did he do? Did he walk around as people complimented his sermons, you know, trying to parade himself about? No, he... He used every ounce of strength and energy looking ahead, the shadow of the cross over his life. He labored in terms of the future. Do we serve in the church in that way? Christ leads us to that. In, in the Hutterberg Catechism on Lord's Day 21 about the Holy Catholic Church and then about the communion of the saints it. It asks, what do you understand by the communion of saints? We confess that tonight, right? We, we profess that. Well, what is that? Well, first, that believers, one and all, as members of Christ the Lord, have communion with him and share in all his treasures and gifts. Okay, so that's communion, first of all, that we're united to Christ, so all his treasures and gifts come to us. But then second, that each member should consider it a duty to use these gifts readily and joyfully for the service and enrichment of the other members. So the Bible speaks that the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. Whatever gifts I have, 
are not so I can walk around puffed up, but that I can bend down and wash feet, that I can serve the body of Christ. You see, our union with Christ, the spirit of Christ in our hearts, is reminding us that it's all going to be over very soon. The spiritual gifts, the opportunities are for the present. And you don't want to regret what you wasted on yourself when the master comes. You don't want to say that you buried the talent in the ground. But you want to say, I used it and I employed it. I took hold of this tool and I made use of it as I waited for you to come. How wonderful Jesus is not to leave the Corinthians in this very backwards understanding of spiritual gifts. How wonderful Jesus Christ is to come to his church by the Apostle Paul and say, as the woman said to the young man, I thought, I thought it was a tool and you fall in love with the tool. Don't worship the spiritual gifts. Worship the Lord and serve his body. So the first thing is the relative value of spiritual gifts. And that gets us all the way down to verse 13. And then the second thing I'd set before you tonight is the greater value of the Christian triad. The greater value of the Christian triad. What's the Christian triad? He writes in verse 13, And now abide faith, hope, and love. That's the great trio often found in Scripture together. The Apostle Paul brings those up. Think of 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 3. He says, I'm always remembering your work of faith, your labor of love, patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Faith, hope, and love. Now, why does Paul bring up these three things here at the end of this discussion about love? How do they come into the picture? Well, Paul is probably still showing the relative value of spiritual gifts by showing now three Christian graces that, that belong to another category. These three partake of the age that is to come. Faith does that, doesn't it? It believes on Christ. It trusts in Christ. It believes his promises. It believes that in Jesus Christ we have righteousness to stand before God. It, it believes the proclamation of Scripture that Christ has paid our full debt. But faith reaches beyond, doesn't it? It reaches to the life to come. First Peter says, although we do not see him yet, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, Receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Faith clings to promises not yet fulfilled. Hebrews 11.13 says of the patriarchs, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, confessed that they were strangers, pilgrims on the earth. Spiritual gifts are less than faith, aren't they? You can be saved without having some spiritual gift. Well, every believer has some spiritual gift. That's what the Bible says. He's distributed. So if you're a Christian, you have the spirit and you have a spiritual gift. But people are saved without tongue speaking. People are saved without being able to prophesy. But nobody's saved without faith. Faith grasp beyond our present knowledge in this life. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says we walk by faith, not by sight. Well, closely connected to that is hope. Hope also 
reaches for the age that is to come. We should, we should never get tired, by the way, of, of reminding ourselves that hope in the Bible is not mean, does not mean what hope means in our culture. In our culture, people say, I hope for something. It means they desire it. It doesn't mean there's any basis in the world for believing they're going to get it. Somebody says, I hope I'm going to win the lottery this week. Okay. It doesn't mean a thing. But in the Bible, when, when it says Christians hope, they have hope, it's the opposite. It's absolutely certain. Absolutely certain. It's a guaranteed future. We have hope. We have the assurance that Jesus is coming for us. And we have the first fruits of that future already invading our lives now because the riches of that future, namely God the Holy Spirit, has come into our lives now. We partake of the age to come because the spirit of the age to come has come into us. He's the seal upon the redemption. and He is the one that causes us to yearn for the age to come, to look, to be a for. Uh, future-oriented people, not satisfied with the life below, but, but as pilgrims longing and looking for what's ahead. And the Corinthians needed this reminder that hope is far greater than, than spiritual gifts. Hope, your certain future to which you are to lean towards, is far greater. The Corinthians had begun to live like this life was all there was, Right? They're living like the world. The world cares about honor upon the earth. The world cares about, about living in the limelight, having the spotlight. And so in Corinth, they, they all rush to, to the stage, the front and center, to have all the glory. And, and he says also in the letter that there's sectarianism and divisions and party spirit. They're, they're, they're bickering with each other. He says they take each other to court because somebody cheated me in the church. I'm going to get my money back, take them to court. He says they're indulging their appetites for meat and wine at the expense of their brothers, not caring about stumbling their brother or, or eating Lord's Supper ahead of him. So there's all this, this worldly living, and he says, no, hope is greater. What is ahead? And hope anticipates that world to come. Romans 8 says, hope that is <clears throat> hope that sees, uh, he, says, he says, we hope for what we do not see. We hope for what we do not see. Hope looks forward. Finally, love here also relates to the age that is to come. We love God because he first loved us. By his love, he's renewed and transformed us. In fact, the, the test of true Christianity is do I love the Lord, right? Many people say, I believe in God. I pray to God. Well, do you love him? Love him. Do you love him? Do you, do you seek him? Do you want to be near him? Does it interest you to come and worship him and to hear his word? Do you love him? Paul will say at the end of this letter, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 22, if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. Love looks ahead. 1 Peter 1.8 says regarding Jesus Christ that though you have not seen him, you love him. I haven't yet seen him, but your love runs ahead to embrace him. It's so far greater than the Spirit's gifting with spiritual gifts. Is the spiritual fruit in the life of God's people of faith and hope and love. 
As believers live out the life of the Spirit in the present age, their lives will be characterized not simply by abilities and gifts, but by faith in Christ, by hope in Christ, by love for Christ and for his people. This great Christian triad, this trio in some sense summarizes the whole of the Christian life, what it means to live in union with Jesus Christ. And all of these are reaching forward to the perfection that will be found in Christ's appearing. By faith, we take hold of a Jesus we haven't yet seen. With hope, we live expectantly for the future. And by love, we embrace with our hearts the Lord who died for us and so loved us. So we've seen the relative value of spiritual gifts and then the greater value of the Christian triad. But finally tonight, notice the surpassing value of love. And that brings us to the last phrase of the chapter. And now abide faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. It's not always good to rank things, you know. The Corinthians in the early chapters, the apostle points out, were ranking preachers. Paul, Simon Peter, Paulus, who who are you for? Who's your favorite preacher? That's pretty dumb, isn't it? If each one of them is a Christian minister, then they're each given to you by Jesus Christ. And if, if you're in a church and you get to hear all three of them preach and you're arguing about which one is the greatest, well, you, you're really missing the boat, aren't you? Each one. Each one in God's grace has something to give you. That's what the spiritual gift is. A spiritual gift is a gift given you by Jesus so that you can give to others. You can serve them. But though ranking preachers is a bad thing, Jesus Christ here ranks love as the greatest among faith, hope, and love. Now, why is love the greatest? Why is love the greatest? As children of the Reformation, you know that faith matters. We're justified by faith. Hope matters, right? I hope we look forward to Jesus' return. Why is love the greatest? Well, in the context, love is the greatest because faith and hope belong to a state of imperfection, and love alone belongs to the eternal state of perfection. You see, faith will one day become sight. And when Jesus comes, you don't live by faith anymore. Now you see. And hope will one day be fulfilled. You don't hope for what you have. When you have it, hope has been completed. But love, love never fails. Love abides forever. Love will fill the new heavens and the new earth. Because God is love. Because love reflects the very character of God. Because the love in our hearts is the love God has shed abroad. And our learning to love is God stamping us with his own image, and making us after his own pattern. And there will be no one in the new heavens and the new earth who does not love. So we think about 
the death of Jesus on the cross, we know that the motivation was love. If you say, why did God send his son? The, the word of God has one word for you, love. God loved the world. So he sent his son. And if you say, well, what was, what was the goal of sending the son? If the motivation was love, what was the goal of sending a son? And the Bible has one word for you, love. That they may be one as we are one. That they may know the love you, with which you've loved me, Jesus said. That they may come into the circle of our Trinitarian love, that these people may be partakers of the love of God. Spiritual gifts are for the present age. Faith is for the present age. Hope is for the present age. Love is for eternity. How strange it was that in Corinth they were emphasizing spiritual gifts as the evidence of their spirituality. Tongue speaking, they seemed to think, was the measure of the height of spiritual status. If you spoke in tongues, you were something before God. And the apostle says, Jesus says, you got it all backwards. If you speak in the tongues of angels of heaven, and you don't have love, it's just so much empty noise. If you think tongue speaking is the mark of your high spiritual status and you are missing love, then you are actually missing the most essential characteristic of heaven. Love is primary. No one can say in Corinth, well, you know, I'm not very good at loving, but I can sure give a sermon. I can sure prophesy. Paul would say there's no prophesying in heaven. There's only love. The glory of the church is God, and God is love. Sometimes, as Christians, we, well, as one writer points out, we emphasize what's distinctive, right? We try to boast what's distinctive. Sometimes, as, as churches, as congregations, we, we emphasize what's distinctive. Maybe one church says we're into expository preaching. Another church says we're a missional church. Another church says we're a church of small groups. We're this, we're that. We're living in a culture that's just a craze with, with identity, with self-expression. Everyone trying on different identities. Everyone trying to be something. Jesus says, not that none of those things matter, but the defining mark of his people is love. Love. We're looking forward to the eternal community of love. We walk in love, we cast out envy and jealousy and pride and puffiness and even indifference and apathy towards one another. And it's the spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ who, who makes us after the image of God, who teaches us to love and to love to eternity. And you see then, congregation, if, if we understand where we're headed, to an abode where the love of God reigns, the church of Christ on earth is to be a little slice of heaven, isn't it? We don't fall in love with ourselves. We don't boast about tools we own, but that we employ everything, every spiritual gift, every opportunity, every strength, every 
relationship in terms of helping each other onward to that great place of love. Over the years, I've often been delighted to hear, and I just heard someone this morning say it in some manner of speaking, we're so thankful for the body of Christ. It's been such a blessing to us. We don't know how we could have made it without the love of brothers and sisters. You've heard those comments. It's a marvelous thing, isn't it? That in the end, the thing that sticks in God's people's mind is how they were loved. My hope and prayer in this little study of 1 Corinthians 13 is that we might grow in our love. Preached one of these sermons on 1 Corinthians 13 up at Grace a few weeks ago, but I, I told him I had chose to preach on 1 Corinthians 13 to the congregation in Salem, not because there was some glaring deficiency. And on the contrary, as I've been studying it, I told them it's it's really great to see the reflection in God's people of the things we read here about what love is. Love is patient and love is kind. And I think it's very true. What a blessing. This congregation is, to see the working out of God the Spirit here, the love for one another, to see the humility, not puffiness, to see the eagerness to do well to each other, to care for each other. And yet, until we see our Lord Jesus, there's always room to grow, isn't there? May the word of God this morning, or this evening, cause us to to look at what we've been given. Remember my spiritual gifts. To look at the opportunities I've been given. Look at the place in the church God has set me. And he asked the question, have I turned it all in on myself? Then I'm asking, how can I get honor? And how can I get attention? And how can I feel satisfied? If we've fallen in love with the gifts... And to pray for the Spirit to turn us right side out. That like our Lord Jesus Christ, we're seeking to use what he's given us in this life to serve the eternal well-being of those in whose fellowship he's placed us. And now abide faith, hope, and love these three. But the greatest of these is love. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for our Lord Jesus, who does not leave us to ourselves, our self-seeking, our self-interest, our selfishness. Satan's kingdom is full of that. Our old nature is full of that. But God, life is found in giving self, in giving away and serving and caring about others. We pray, Lord, you continue to grow us in that way, even as we give you thanks for the work of your Spirit in the life of this congregation. We pray you might continue to show us mercies, stripping us of pride, filling us with loving humility, and above all, God, set our eyes upon the coming of Christ, when the partial will give way to the complete, when the imperfect will give way to perfection, and when the love that we know in part an exercise in part, will be made full. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Come into our hearts tonight and come.
and bring the end of the age upon us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.